Good morning. Welcome to Cultivate. My name is Jay. Uh, it's my honor to welcome you this morning. Uh, I get the honor of pastoring here, this fine group of people. And uh, if you're a guest with us this morning, then you are welcome. We are glad to have you here uh, among us. And uh, we pray that uh, somehow, some way, God would use this morning, either through the, the music or somehow through my words, uh, or just the connection that you find with other people to do something significant in your lives. That's really what we pray for each and every week here at Cultivate. And uh, so far, God has not failed to show up when we ask him to be here, and I'm very thankful for that. We are going through a series uh, here at Cultivate called uh, Rethink. And uh, what we're doing in this series is that we're spending a good amount of time, 15 weeks from January 1 to Easter Sunday, to kind of skip our way, hop and skip our way through the book of Mark, one of the four Gospels. And so we're hitting some of the highlights for us. Really what we're trying to do throughout this entire series is to uh, get for us, uh, for our church, for this community, a picture, a vision, if you will, of what Jesus is like, uh, what what it means to rethink our lives in light of a relationship with him, and uh, to listen really intently in terms of what he has uh, for this community and wants to do in and through us because we believe uh, that Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, he makes us alive. Uh, So we've been going through the book of Mark. We're not hitting everything along the way, but we're hitting a lot of the highlights. Uh, So last week, you may have noticed that we were in chapter 5. This week, we've skipped a few stories, and now we're at the back end of chapter 6. Um, my goal really throughout this entire thing is, has been, and I mentioned this last week, uh, that, that all of us in discovering a little bit more about who Jesus is, what he's like, and, and the fact that he is available to us, um, specifically here in our day, um, that it would cause us uh, in our hearts to really grow in our love for him. That, that by the end of this series, we would be able to say, as a church and as individuals, we love and we are passionate about Jesus and what he is doing in us and through us and who he is and who he's been. Uh, my second goal really throughout this has been that, that all of us would gain a greater appreciation for his word. And so we've been asking you to kind of go through uh, the, the verses with us uh, to sort of read along in the book of Mark. Um, and, and specifically on Sunday mornings, we've, we've put these under your seats so that you can kind of open it up yourself, find out where we are, uh, maybe read along or read some of the passages around it to get an understanding of what God's Word is and how it works in our lives. And Mandy and I were talking about this uh, just last night. She was sharing with me that she's been reading through the book of Mark as we've been going, and it's really opened her eyes to, to Jesus and what he wants to do in her life. Um, and she's gained a greater appreciation just for reading and uh, for listening to what God has to say through his word. So uh, we are going to be uh, in the book of Mark, and we're going to pick up in, uh, in chapter 6, starting in verse 30. I'm going to read through the passage. It's on page 699. You can read along with me, and, uh, and then we're going to go back through the passage and kind of do, uh, do some work in it. So it says, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. 
But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, it's, it's, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wage. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to all the, all the people to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, Jesus gave thanks uh, and broke the loaves, then gave it to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Uh, this is one of the uh, most significant, probably one of the most well-known miracles uh, in the entire Bible. It says that, that Jesus and his disciples fed that day 5,000 people with nothing more than a lunchbox full of bread and fish. I don't know about you, but if I don't care what kind of superhero is on your lunchbox, it's very difficult to feed that many people with just one lunch. Um, and it's so significant in Scripture that all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all mention this one event. It's the only miracle that gets mentioned in every Gospel other than the resurrection itself. And so for us, we chose this as one of the passages because it's pretty significant. I think it says something pretty significant. Um, I, I think that it shows the power of God in a very practical way. If you remember last week, we kind of ended on the fact that Jesus, after he had raised a girl from the dead, decided that it wasn't good for her to be hungry, and so he gives her something to eat or calls them to give her something to eat. And in the same way, we see this miracle now here that's tailored to a very practical need. These people have come out to hear Jesus speak, to, to get a sense of who he is, and in the meantime, they have no means to feed themselves. And so Jesus says, I want to take care of this practical need and provide for them. I think it also demonstrates Jesus' heart for people, and at the same time, I think it demonstrates for us some of the reasons why we sometimes have a difficult time in relating to Jesus and figuring out his heart for people and what keeps us from being able to understand that heart that he has for people. So the passage starts out this way. It says, The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. What did they do and what did they teach? Well, this passage comes almost directly after, actually directly after two different stories. And those come back to back in in chapter 6 of Mark. The first one talks about how Jesus gave authority to his disciples to actually go out Uh, two by two into the towns and villages for some very specific things. He said, I'm going to give you power and authority. You're to go out into these places, and I want you to do some things. And he says, I want you to uh, teach people about the kingdom of God, but I also want you to heal people who are sick, and I want you to cast out demons from those who have unclean spirits. 
And they go, okay, well, we've seen you do it. We're not sure if we can do it. And, uh, and he gives them authority, he sends them out, they go, and it actually happens. It says that many people were affected by their ministry because these guys went out and did all this stuff. And so they were coming back and giving Jesus the report about everything that had happened that day. At the same time, though, another event was sort of going on around the same time. And it says that Jesus got wind of the fact that his cousin, John the Baptist, had come against some really hard, unfortunate circumstances. So unfortunate that he lost his head over it. Uh, See, John had been a a prophet uh, telling people of Israel that there was a king that was going to be coming to town and that everybody should rethink their lives because this king was going to be here soon. It turns out that king was Jesus, but he didn't make too many friends when he did this, right? Especially the guy who called himself king that day and age. And so he would call him in, and eventually his wife got so frustrated with his ministry and his preaching, he said, we got to get a hold of this guy, and so they put him in prison. And he sat in Herod's prison for some time until a weird event comes along when Herod decides to throw a party with all these people, and his daughter-in-law, the the daughter of the person he marries, uh, comes in under her mother's influence. Her mother basically said, I want you to go and try to get on the good side of the king because I want him to execute John. I really, I don't want him to be around. And so she goes in and does some kind of seductive dance for the guy and he's under the influence. And he says, "In in a moment of drunkenness, I will give you anything that you want. And she said, I want the head of John the Baptist. And so he said, well, I don't really, I'm not really against the guy. I wasn't planning to do it, but since you asked for it, since I promised, I'm going to give it to you. And they actually execute the guy based on the whim of a drunken madman king. And so Jesus, can you, can you figure out kind of where he's at? He's at another long day, right? Just like what we were talking about before. Uh, of, of ministry, of sending out his disciples, but at the same time, he's caught wind of the fact that all of this has taken place, and John happens to be Jesus' cousin. Think about somebody close to you suddenly being deceased under those kind of circumstances when you feel like you've had a mountaintop-type experience. You've gone and you sent people out, and they're coming back with stories of victory, You think things are good, things are going well, and then all of a sudden in the midst of that, you get this horrible news. How do you respond when you get bad news? What is your first reaction when something like that comes your way? My my default mode is that I I tend to retreat from the world. I tend to to pull back. I don't want a whole lot of relationships, don't want a whole lot of ministry, I just want to think about, pray through, figure out whatever that bad news is to try to figure it out on my own apart from everybody. And here's the thing. There's there's really no good answer. There's no, like, this is what's right and this is what's wrong. I think all of us relate to bad news in a very specific way for us. But I know for myself, I always thought of Jesus as being this, like, impenetrable Superman, right? And so you try to shoot them, and it just bounces off of them. The bullets just, they don't stick, right? They don't penetrate anywhere. He's just, he's invincible, right? He's God. And so you think with bad news that he would just let it bounce off of him. Let's get back to work. We've got the kingdom of God. We're going to press forward. We're going to do all this stuff. What's interesting, though, is he doesn't do that. 
And actually, according to the Gospel of Matthew, it says that because of this news that came his way, he decided to retreat with some of his closest disciples to pull away, to get some rest, and to recharge. It's very interesting, but it shows a little bit of the heart of Jesus, right? Because somebody who is close to people on earth, who is a real person with real emotions and feelings, gets bad news and he says, this changes things and we need to reset. I hope you're able to see Jesus in that kind of light because it changes the way that we view him. Sometimes he seems unrelatable because he is so perfect, right? And lived a perfect life and died a perfect death. Was obedient entire life. And sometimes we miss the fact that he was a real person. So he goes and retreats, and that's where we'll pick up the story again. It says, then because so many people were coming and going, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving, recognized them, and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. Um, in all likelihood, these are the very people that they had ministered to that day. So he sends out the 12. They do ministry in the towns and villages. Then they see Jesus moving to a solitary place, and they say, we need to go and meet him there and find out if this king really is who the disciples said they were. It seems like he has power like nobody else has ever had before. But we want to go and check it out for ourselves. We're not going to wait and see uh, what happens based on the testimony of others, we want to know for ourselves. What's interesting is they were literally running from their homes to a desolate place in search of the king. So if you think about it this way, uh, we've already talked about the fact that there is a king there, right? His name is Herod. And he is ruling over the area. And the fact that he's ruling over the area means that there's peace and calm that people are comfortable in their homes, that they have everything that they need to survive for daily life. So picture this. You're at home. You've got everything that you need. You have food. You have your family. You've got all that you need. You hear about Jesus going to a desolate place, and you pick up and move from everything that's comfortable, and you say, I'm going to go with Jesus wherever he goes. There wasn't anything for them to find where they went other than Jesus, correct? A desolate place in the scripture is another word to say uh, barren, desert. There is no way to sustain yourself where they went. So they are picking up from everything that was sustaining them before and, we, and saying by, by virtue of their traveling to that place, Jesus, you, we believe that you can provide everything that we need. Let me ask this. Um, do you have that attitude when it comes to Jesus? Do you and I believe that with our hearts, that we can, in every sense of the word, be completely satisfied with him? Or do we say that we're going to follow Jesus, but when it comes to actually putting action to words, when it comes to opening the door and moving out from our comfort zone to where Jesus is, do we stop and we say, I'd rather not go? I think it's a question for all of us to ask. And sometimes it takes those kinds of moments where God 
strips away sort of the comforts of our lives to be able to prove that he is everything that we need. Just thinking about this with my own uh, story of how I came to faith in Christ, because uh, I would say for most of my life, I believed in Jesus. I, I knew about him. I knew the story of his life. I believed that he was a real person who lived a sinless life, who died on the cross. I believed that that death was a payment for sin and that he did, in fact, rise again and was living. I believed all those things up here. But none of them actually sunk down into a heart level where it affected my daily life. Still lived the way I wanted to live. Still only recognized God when it was most convenient for me. And it's interesting because I knew that God wanted to do something in my life, but I really wasn't sure what that was, and I didn't know how it was going to happen. But it didn't happen the way that I preferred it to happen. What God had to do, and he did in my junior year of college, is that he gradually, slowly but surely stripped away everything that I previously found security in. You find safety in in relationships, they're gone. You find security in the fact that you have a place to live, it's gone. You find your identity in the fact that you like to party and try to be among people who seem cool and hip, it's gone. One by one, all these things stripped away from me until I really had nothing left. And the only place I could cry out to was him. I share that not to say that God is somehow like a, uh, a condemning father. It was the most loving, the most caring, the most kind, the most providential thing that God could have ever done in my life. And it was the only, only way that I would, in myself, be able to recognize and understand who he is and who he could be in my life, which was everything. But it took a process to get there. And that process, by God's grace, is not done. These people, though, they seem to have an attitude of, I am going to leave everything behind and follow after Jesus. They leave their homes, they leave their safety and comfort, and they say, I'm going to find all those things in him. They were so enamored with him, too. They were so dependent on him, they actually got to the place where Jesus was going before he did. He, they ran from their homes to find out where he was getting to. And so when he landed, they were there waiting for him. So it says, when Jesus landed, he saw the large crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began to teach them many things. They come from their homes to this desolate place Jesus lands on the shore, and he goes, man, not again. <laughs> right? If you've been reading along with Mark, you find out this happens a lot in Jesus' life. He gets to a place. He thinks he's going to have some rest. He gets off the boat, and he's mobbed. He's like, don't you know that the Messiah light is off? You know, I just come back in the morning. He doesn't do that, does he? It says he had compassion on them. 
because he saw them for what they were. He saw a people who lived underneath the rule of a king and yet were not shepherd, shepherded. The evidence of that was that they had left their homes and tried to meet Jesus because they were shouting out to him, we need a new shepherd because the one that we've got isn't working for us. And rather than push them away, Jesus says, I'm going to teach you many things. The disciples, they see a hungry mob of people, which we'll see in a moment. Jesus sees something different, though. Here's the application point, I think, for it. Um, Jesus, like those people, does the same thing for us. He looks into our life. We see a mess, and Jesus sees something of potential. We look at our lives, and we think, I'm never going to measure up. Jesus looks into our life and says, I've measured up for you. Why don't you just come to me? Did you know this, that Jesus is under no obligation to love you? Sometimes we get it in our mind that he sort of has to love us. You, you think of the, the people traveling to this desolate place, and they go, well, we've come all this way, Jesus. You've got no choice. You've got to get off the boat and love us. And sometimes we can do that in our own lives, too. We think, I've done X, Y, and Z, God. Now show up. Jesus and God, they're, they're under absolutely no obligation to love you. It's not like the t-shirt, right? You see the t-shirt that says, Jesus loves you, but then again, he loves everybody. You ever see that one? It's not like that at all. He chooses to love. It's a great application point for those of us that have difficulty loving others. Particularly those of us that might be in marriage relationships, when loving the other person, despite their flaws and imperfections, gets difficult and more difficult and more difficult over time as God reveals their imperfections to you. What marriage says is that we are not under obligation to love, but we choose to love. That is part of the covenant agreement. I'm going to choose to love you in spite of you. Because in loving you, I become more like God. That's what marriage is about. And that's the the kind of relationships that God calls us to all the time. But the key is to understand that God loves us with that same kind of love. It doesn't matter how much you've measured up in the past. It doesn't matter how much you've not measured up in the past. It doesn't matter how much you've screwed your life up to this point and you think God will never love me. Jesus says, I choose to have compassion on you. Because you see your life as a mess, and I see it as being a sheep without a shepherd. You just need a new shepherd. And there's good news because I am the good shepherd, he says. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He says, I know what you can become. And the only way that you can become everything that I've intended for you to be is for me to give my life away so that you can have it. That's what he does. He is the good shepherd. He sees us that way. He sees the crowd that way. He is the good shepherd. But how often do we drift from that reality, right? My encouragement to you today would be to rediscover that side of Jesus. That he comes to you in every state, in any state that you are. 
And he says, I enjoy spending time with you. I love you for who you are and who you will be. Just come and spend time with me also. Would you do that? And every time we do, God reveals more of his love to us. But the disciples, they don't quite get it, right? It says, by that time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away. So they go home to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something themselves, something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. Do you ever wonder this? Those of you who have read this story before, why in the world does he say you give them something to eat? Why does he push it back onto his disciples? It, it says in the Gospel of John and in John's version uh, that Jesus already knew what he was about to do, but he was giving it as a test. And you think, that's kind of cruel, Right? Here they had come back from a whole day of ministry. They had done all these great things, and they come back, and Jesus has more tests for them. Are you kidding? We're trying to go away to a solitary place and find some rest. We've had a long day, Jesus, and now you're trying us again? But instead of becoming frustrated with them and turning them away, Jesus has compassion even on his own disciples. And his compassion comes in the form of a test. The test is something like this. Will they choose to continue a lifestyle of trusting God and living in the power of what God provides in their lives? Or will they recede back into the previous life that they had before knowing Jesus? Remember, he had just sent them out, and they did all these crazy, amazing things. And now they come back, and Jesus has this other test for them. And the test is this. Are you going to continue to follow me, or are you going to choose a different way and go back to the way of the world? Jesus never gives us a test so that we'll fail. He never gives us a test so that we'll fail. His disposition is always, I want to give you a test so that you will succeed. How many of you ever had teachers who you knew wanted you to succeed and they would, not in giving you the answers for you and try to help you through it, but they they do everything that they can to prepare you to succeed on that test. Anyone have a, a teacher like that? It's a wonderful thing, right? Because you know by by virtue of what they're doing, that they want you to succeed through that test because they realize that you'll be different on the other side of it. And they do it for your benefit and not for them. Some of us have had teachers that give tests because they want to make an example out of somebody. Right? And so they just give a test and they ratchet up the difficulty knowing that somebody's going to fail just to make an example out of someone so that the rest of the people will raise their level of effort the rest of the year. That's not this kind of test at all. I was uh, talking with John about uh, this week about uh, a test. And I, I, it's funny, because I I perceived that the last time the Giants and the Patriots played, if you didn't get it already, I'm a Patriots fan. (laughs) Boo, I know. We'll get over it. Um, but the, so we were talking on the phone, and I, 
it, we were talking about uh, the last time they played, and I said the real, I realized afterwards, because, I mean, just total disclosure, I got really flippin' angry last time. <laughs> I mean, I, so I, I was, uh, the game ended, I, I decided I needed to get out of the house, I'm going to walk the dog, and so we, we start going around the house, or, or around the block, and apparently there are all these Giants fans that suddenly materialized in my neighborhood. And uh, people were, like, banging pots and yelling and stuff. And I was like, there is no end to this. I can't get away from it. Um, but, but I needed to blow off steam. So I, what I told John is I realized last time that, uh, that it was a test, that God was saying, in essence to me, your allegiance is too far in another direction besides me. And John goes, ha, very funny. You're just trying to say I'm too, like, my allegiance is too much with the giants. And I said, you can feel guilty all you want about what God's doing in your life. I'm just saying what's true of my own life. Um, Another more serious test, I think, came when when I was really considering full-time ministry. I was coming off of uh, doing some campus ministry uh, in Philly, where I lived, and uh, the, the game plan, the goal was to go from what I was doing in Philly, and I was going to start going to seminary to get training as a pastor, but at the same time, I was going to start working at my church. And I've told this story to some of you that have been around for a little while. Um, but I really believe with everything that was in me that that was God's plan. It was God's desire that I was going to go to school, and I was going to start on staff with my church, and I was going to do some things with discipleship and really gain practical experience alongside the academic stuff. Sounds really good in my head. And not only was it my plan, but it was the leadership's plan of the church. They had discussed it and talked about it, uh, decided it was the right thing to do. And so they, they put together this plan about how they were going to um, present it to the congregation and, and how they were going to frame it. Everything was going to go fine. Just a, a, a minor hiccup in the road before we get there, though. We need to have a congregational vote. Because every time in that church governance system uh, that you hired somebody for the church, you needed to take a vote to make sure that there was confidence in the congregation for the new person that was coming on staff. It makes a lot of sense, um, but they were just saying it's a minor hiccup, don't worry about it, we're going to take this vote. It turned out that the vote didn't go so well. And instead of getting the 80% that I needed, I only got 65%. And I remember going home that night and thinking, God, what in the world are you doing? Like, don't you see this was the plan? We, we had it together, right? We, we came up with it together, yes? And now all of a sudden you're pulling an audible on me. What in the world is going on? I remember thinking this over and over and over again throughout that week. What am I going to do now? Do I continue to serve at that church? Do I go somewhere else? God, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And I remember talking with my pastor. He called me. He gave me a little bit of space because he knew I was probably upset. And then he called me the following weekend just to follow up with me and see how I was doing. He said, "Uh, don't forget that God always gives tests so that you will succeed them. This is just a test. The question is, how are you going to respond to it? And as it turns out, uh, God knew what he was doing. Um, He usually does. I'm very thankful for that, by the way. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, because if, if that hadn't worked out the way it did, um, I wouldn't have come to Discovery Church. Discovery Church wouldn't have been Cultivate Church. We wouldn't probably be here this morning. Um, and I don't share that to say it'll all work out in the end, because I have no idea if your test will work out in the end. I have no idea if my test is actually working out in the end. All I do know is this, that God gives us a test in order to perfect us, not to give us what we most want. He does it for our benefit in order to make us the kind of person that he wants us to be, not in order to give us the circumstances that we most want to receive. And so by God's grace, I think, as I was reflecting on that whole journey, that what God was doing in my life was showing me that my dependence was too much on my job situation and not on him. That if he really did call me, he, will, he really will prepare me, and he really will use me where he has me, but I need to have faith in him in the moment of the trial. That's why the trial comes. But it's a very difficult thing to do in the moment. And I don't know if I passed mine or not, but by God's grace, he's been using me ever since then. Do you remember two weeks ago when, um, when Robert shared the, the parable of the soils? He talked about all the different soils, right? And there was one soil that came along where the seed, the, which represents the word of God, it fell on the rocks. You remember that one? And it fell among the rocks. And what happened? It tried to grow up, but it didn't have much of a root. And so a storm came along, and the winds came along, and it blew the, the, the little sprout right out of the ground. And, it, and Jesus comes back and he says, that represents those people who receive the word. They receive the call of Jesus. They receive God's work in their life with joy. With great joy, God, thank you for what you're doing in me. It's so wonderful to know who you are. I, you know, I will always be in relationship with you. And then the first time trial comes, they go, ah, I'm out of here. Jesus said it's those people that don't produce anything. In the end, it's only the tested faith that really is faith worth having. James, Jesus' brother, actually puts it this way. Consider it pure joy. Not like partial joy, not like diluted joy, not like I'm going to be joyful if it works out, but if it doesn't work out, I'm not going to be too joyful. Consider it pure, undiluted joy. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So when God gives us a test, it's so that we would become mature, not lacking anything. So God's intention is to transform you, not to make you more comfortable. It's to multiply his work in you. So let me give you a little piece of advice. When God brings a trial to your life, and you may be experiencing that trial today, this morning, as we speak, you may be sitting there thinking in your mind, I am going through a trial. My encouragement to you this morning would be, instead of asking the question, why, 
you would ask the question, what? What is it that you want in me, God, that you are using this moment in time to produce? What are you doing in me? And how should I respond? Unfortunately for the disciples, they don't do so well on their test. And it says, they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages to feed these people. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? In in other words, they're saying eight months of a man's wages in that day was about 200 denarii. A denarii is a Roman coin. And people received it for their wages. They're saying we would need 200 of these things stacked up just to feed everybody a little piece of a morsel. It is never going to happen. What's interesting is, is that it had the face of Caesar on it. Right? You realize what's going on? Jesus is saying, I want you to feed them. Which implies that it's actually possible. And their response to him is, we need more stuff of the world to be able to do it. In essence, they're saying, these people that have come all the way out here because they're dissatisfied with the king that they are currently under and want to find a new shepherd, we need to send them back to the old shepherd to get what they need. Do you understand what's going on? Jesus wants to do a miracle. They want to manage it. They're saying our resources, they just don't add up. I don't know if you've looked around, but uh, we don't have what it takes to be able to provide what they need. So let me ask this. How often do those of us that follow Jesus, who know Jesus, who have seen Jesus do miraculous things in our lives and in our churches over and over and over again, that we come to the, the God of the universe and we say, this is a problem that only the resources of the world can solve. See how that would be heartbreaking to God who provides all things to those who are his children? We're so quick to solve problems with manageable solutions when God, in fact, wants to provide a miracle. Let me say this. Don't use the lack of what you have to undermine the miracle that God wants to accomplish. You'll say, but my resources are inadequate. I don't have what I need. And God's response to you would be, neither did they, and I did it anyway. The providing of resources is actually Jesus' job, not ours. It's our job to have faith in the one that provides them. I I was thinking about this as we were talking about um, what we're going to be doing in Haiti. And uh, it was interesting to me because back when we were having the initial conversation about what we were going to do in terms of a global mission, we already had the the food bank was, was firing on all cylinders. We had the the community garden up and running, and that was really producing fruit and doing a great thing. And we were relating with people in the garden. And so our eyes were starting to turn towards a global project that, that would kind of complete the whole phase for us because we wanted local, regional, and global mission. 
as part of the mission of Cultivate Church. We started looking at it, and I remember getting uh, plugged in with 410 Bridge, finding out about what they do, and uh, bringing some of that information back to our action team that was going to be working out a lot of the details for that project. And uh, with 410, you've got a number of different options for how to invest yourselves in a community. And they sort of increase in uh, commitment level the further that you go up. And so it starts out that you can just kind of send money. right? You can send money overseas. You'll find out where it goes. Uh, you'll, you'll feel pretty good about it and say, we did some stuff. We were able to, to spend some money. Uh, the, the second level option is that you can actually raise support and go to Haiti on a service trip. And you can experience the people there, and you can invest in them for a week, and then you can come home and share those experiences and say, God is able to do a great thing. Both of those options are good options, but there was a third one even above that. And that option was called community partnership. The community partnership means that you choose a community to invest in for at least three years. And what I mean by invest, and what they mean by invest, is that you choose to spend at least $10,000 a year as a church on that community. As well, you choose to send at least two teams of people to that community every year for three years. Let me just be totally honest with you. I read that the first time, and I said, there is no way that we can do this as a church We're too small. Our resources are too few. How in the world are we ever going to accomplish this together? It just seems like an enormous task. We've never tried anything that big before. I remember bringing it to the team, and we discussed it, and I brought it back to 410, and we talked about it, and we decided let's just go on a vision trip and, and see what's actually happening on the ground so that we can decide for ourselves once we get there which direction that we should go. Because in our hearts, what we wanted to do is we didn't just want to throw money at a situation. We didn't want to just go somewhere and then come back and never see people again. We wanted to to do ministry according to our mission and our values. And our values are to be relational, transformational, and missional. We want to show people what it's like to know Jesus. And we want to talk about him because he's great. But not only that, we want to build a relationship with people. We want them to know that not only does God love them, but we love them with the love of God. And because of that, we want to get to know them. And we want them to know us. And that can only happen over a period of time. And not only those two things, but we want it to be a transformational experience. We want to be transformed by God because we gave. And we want the people that we invest in to be transformed by God by what we do. And the only one that accomplished those three values was to be a community partner. And, we say, and so we said, all right, we're going we're gonna to go to Haiti. We're going to raise money over Christmas to try and do this together and just see what God does. Let's just see. Let's not commit to anything, but let's see what he does. I told you already that we raised $4,500 on Christmas Eve to go towards that mission. And the way that the budget worked out this year because we give 10% towards our action team projects, which are all ministries that don't come back and bless us as a church. And based on what we needed for the other areas of action team, they started to do the subtraction. And guess how much the total pot came up to? Exactly. Can you guess? Yeah, 8,500. 
Almost exactly. Jen and I went and experienced some time with these people. We came back and we said, these are some fantastic people who have enormous dreams for their community. How could we not build a relationship with them? And so over the next three years, guess what we're going to do? I'm I'm confident that, that the down payment is already made. And that we will, by God's grace, send two teams a year every year for the next three years and establish a relationship with one community in Haiti. And after that period of time, once they start to lift themselves out of poverty, we will see a community go from poverty to middle-class Haitians. We will transform a community forever. Do you feel that? That is God multiplying the resources that we have Because we trusted in faith to go and to give, and God is going to do an amazing thing through it. And I hope you come along with us, actually, because it's going to be a fantastic time. When life becomes unmanageable, that's when God has the best opportunity to provide a miracle. And I think he's going to do it through us. And so Jesus does do the miracle, right? He says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. They found out and said that we have five and we have two fists. And then Jesus directed them uh, to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. Take note of that just for a second, the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven and he gave thanks. He broke the loaves and he gave it to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten that day was 5,000. Matthew says that they likely had their wives and children with them. So we're looking at a group of about 20,000 people. The context is this. We can look at it and we, we can say, wow, God does miracles. Isn't that great? He did a miracle for them. What in the world does it have to do with me? The key is in the green grass. You know what green grass means? In that day and age in Israel, you had rainy season and you had dry season. It's like arid places of the world today. The fact that they had green grass meant that it was springtime. Mark is giving us a very key word here that we're not to miss. He said it's springtime. You know what happens in springtime in Jewish culture? It's a little event called Passover. Passover is the celebration of what happened in the days of Israel when they were in bondage in Exodus. If you go back and read in Exodus, you can read it for yourself, that Israel were enslaved to the Egyptians. And God's plan was to free them, was to break them out of that bondage. And so what he decided to do is in order to convince the king of that time that God was going to do this work for his people to get them out of there, he said, I'm going to bring about a a number of plagues that are going to plague the people of Egypt until the king has no choice but to say, all right, you can go. You are free from slavery. And the very last one that God brought was something called Passover. What he instructed the people of Israel to do, he said, I am going to bring about a plague unlike Egypt has ever seen before. I'm actually going to kill each firstborn son. 
And so in order to avoid this fate, what you were to do is you were to take blood, which symbolizes death, and you were to paint your doorposts with this. And when I come to town, and it's not going to be pretty when I come to town, let me tell you, when I come to town, I'm going to pass over every single house that does not have, or that has blood on it. Those houses I will let go. Every other house I'm going to visit in a very strong way. And it will say to the king of Egypt, these people are to be free. Now Mark comes along and he writes about this miracle that Jesus does at Passover. It's very interesting what Jesus does. What does he do with the bread? He takes it. He blesses it. He breaks it. And he distributes it. And it says that everyone was satisfied. Here's what I think we're to pick up on. That Jesus is for those people And we are to read for us the Passover lamb. So when God comes to break us free of bondage, the way that he does it is through Jesus. And and the bread actually symbolizes Jesus' very life. Jesus took bodily form, right? He came down from heaven, from God to become man. God blessed that life. He lived a perfect, sinless life. His body was broken for us to give us freedom. And then he distributes that freedom to anyone who would eat of it. Jesus says it this way, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. We're to read Mark in this passage and say that same freedom is available to us because that's what Jesus does. He is the Passover lamb. He is the bread of life that gives us freedom, that gives anyone freedom who would come to him. The question is for us, will we come to him? Let me ask this as we close out. Who do you identify with in the story? Where do you find yourself? It could be that you find yourself along the path of the disciples. Maybe you've been following Jesus, but it's just really difficult to trust him. And so I've been looking for ways to manage my own life by the resources that I have. My advice to you would be to confess to him all the ways that you've tried to manage your life and to give it over to him again in confidence and ask God to provide the miracle for whatever trial you happen to be facing today. It could be that you are the crowd, though, and that you've been living under the kingdom of this world, and like the crowd that followed Jesus out to the place, you've showed up in search of a new king today. My encouragement to you would be this. Leave behind those things of comfort that keep you from clinging on to him as Savior. Run to the shoreline and see for yourself the kind of king that Jesus can be the kind of compassion that he provides, the kind of sustenance that he gives for a life. Test him in that and see if he doesn't provide the same thing for you that he provided for them. That he will give to you every spiritual need that you have and every physical need. 
My confidence is this, that he will prove himself more than capable in your life. That has been my experience from day one. And I think it will be yours too. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, you are the word that comes into our lives. And because of that, we get a taste, a sample of who you are and what you can do with a life. Thank you for stories like this that remind us that, uh, that you can't be tamed. Sometimes we try to uh, make you manageable. And we say, if I just do X, Y, and Z, then God, you need to do this. Yet you don't work that way. But God, I, I do pray that just now in this moment, you would allow us to see that even with the meager resources that we have in life, if we simply offer those over to you, you take them and you multiply them and you use us far beyond our capacity to do it ourselves. God, I pray that you would give encouragement to those that may find themselves in that place today. For those of us that are experiencing a trial, help us to see that you are loving us and guiding us through that trial. I pray that that trial that we are facing today would lead us closer to you and to become more like you. For those of us who may have never experienced Jesus, we, maybe we're just coming to the shoreline for the first time and we're hearing for the very first time this new king that offers to come and to reign in us. And I pray that you would prompt those people to to lay down their comforts that they've previously put their hope in and to say to you, Jesus, I need you. And I recognize that you are the only one that can provide for me. God, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. Thanks for your grace. Thanks for today, in Jesus' name.